0: Now read that same psalm, Psalm 6, which I believe is on page 530 in uh, the Pew Bibles. It's a psalm of David, which the superscription tells us is to be used in uh, public worship. It says that it's written to the choir master with stringed instruments, according to uh, the sheminith, some kind of, of musical or liturgical term. And so we see that even the uh, desperate cries of the disturbed and depressed child of God have their place in public worship. And thank God they do. Psalm 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Well, the Psalms, uh, Calvin said, are the anatomy of the soul. There is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented. And they speak of our righteous anger, as in Psalm 4 and Psalm 5. Uh, they speak of our guilt and shame as in uh, Psalm 32 or, or Psalm 130, which which we sang. They uh, they speak of our fears, they speak of our sorrows. And Psalm 6 is one of those psalms that speaks of of the sadness God's people sometimes feel. Where verse 2, we're languishing. Verse 3, our soul is, is greatly troubled, and we say, How long, flooding our bed with tears and growing weak because of our foes. David is here suffering immense pressure. We don't know exactly the context. Um, some think that this psalm is, is occasioned by his sin. Um, historically, this, this uh, psalm has been numbered among the seven penitential psalms, the psalms of, of confession. But if you look closely at the psalm, you notice that David doesn't confess any sin. He doesn't um, use the, the ordinary language of repentance. But nevertheless, he feels like he's under God's wrath, like he's being disciplined or rebuked by the Lord. Those words don't always imply sin. Sometimes they speak of God teaching us a lesson as he often does through affliction. What David is here saying is that whatever difficult lesson God may be teaching, it feels like he's suffering God's wrath. He's a bit like Job. He's he's not done anything to deserve this, but as far as he can tell, he feels like he's suffering under God's wrath. In fact, the way he describes himself in in verses 2 and 3 has parallels with the way that God treats his enemies in Psalm 2. There, you you might remember, God says that, that as he speaks to his enemies in his wrath, he will terrify them. And here in Psalm 6, that same word for terrify is used in verse 2 and verse 3 when David says that his body and his soul are troubled. The Hebrew word for troubled is the same word from Psalm 2 for how God's enemies will be terrified by his wrath. And so David in this psalm feels like he's being treated as one of God's enemies. Of course, he's not. But nevertheless, he shows us how to pray when it feels like we are. Here again, we find ourselves in that same school of prayer that we did in the book of Job, where God's righteous servant suffers and shows us how to plead in the midst of his sorrow. Really, we see three parts of this psalm in in verses 1 to 3, and then also 6 and 7, we see the sufferer's sorrow. Right in the middle of that, in verses 4 and 5, we see the sufferer's supplication, Then in verses 8 through 10, at the end, we see the sufferer's salvation. Again, a little bit like Job. He is vindicated before his enemies in the end by the Lord who heard his weeping and accepted his prayer. So look with me first at the sufferer's sorrow. He basically says in this this first half of the psalm, Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger. Don't treat me like an enemy, but, but see how I'm languishing. Behold the tears that flood my bed and drench my couch. He, he sets before God his weakness. He sets before God how he's failing, how he's at the end of himself, how his bones are, are terrified, how his soul is greatly terrified. He's suffering both um, physically and spiritually. Um, something maybe he's suffering some kind of illness or the emotional trauma that he's experiencing is leading to physical pain. So whether it's it's the, the terrified body that leads to the greatly terrified soul or vice versa, he's suffering both physically and emotionally. He's in need of healing. And so ask God, how long? How long must this go on? How long until you see my affliction? And the way that he says in verse three, um, but, "But you, O oh Lord, how long?" Sort of an interesting statement. He doesn't doesn't quite even even make a full statement. It makes it seem like like he's almost so weary that he can't even finish his sentence, as if he's trying to ask, "Lord, how long will you delay your mercy?" But he can't even bring himself to finish, and he feels forsaken. What he's basically doing in these first three verses as he sort of sets up his prayer is he's placing before God a portrait of his weakness to move God to act. One church father said, weakness is the first and best argument for God's mercy. God is near to the brokenhearted as we sang in Psalm 34 and so David is making the case that that's him. Be gracious to me, for I'm languishing. And his, his request for grace is not necessarily to imply that he's sinned, but he realizes that he has no claim on God, and so he pleads his weakness, knowing he has nothing to turn to but God's grace. And so he says, Lord, I'm weak. He is both crying out in distress and also directing his cry to the only one who can alleviate that distress. And then it goes on in verses 6 and 7, saying, I'm weary with moaning. I've been crying out for so long, my throat is getting sore. It feels like the nights never end. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. As often is the case with sufferers, it's in the long watches of the night when silence and loneliness increase, that the, the pain and grief reach their darkest point. The nights are long. They're filled, in his case, with weeping and with moaning. So that he says his eye wastes away because of his grief. It may be that he's, he's speaking of his eyes becoming clouded with tears. Or since in, in the Psalms, the eyes are often connected with looking to God to act, it may be that he's saying his eyes fail to see God intervene. And he's been looking for so long that his eyes are starting to waste away. Either way, the picture is one of weakness. It's, it's one of waiting. It's, it's one of wailing. And it's made worse by the foes who were introduced at the end of verse 7. These foes who we might picture taunting him. As he's suffering physically and emotionally, these foes, perhaps like Job's friends, they come with their accusations, treating him like one who must be suffering for sin. Boys and girls, you remember in, in the book of Job how one of the worst parts of Job's suffering and affliction all throughout that book was his friends who came and, and told him that he must be sinning because he's or he must be suffering because he's such a horrible sinner. Job 1 tells us that Job was the most righteous and blameless man in all the East, and yet they say to him, Job drinks injustice like water. What man is as sinful as Job? Perhaps the psalmist has taunters just like Job did who are surrounding him and mocking him and accusing him, saying your bones are trembling, your soul is terrified, it must be because of your sin. Like David's enemies back in Psalm 3, they say there is no salvation for him in God and his suffering is the proof of it. They take counsel against the Lord's anointed and become his accusers. This is the same thing that will happen to Christ. It's the same thing that happened to Job as as David is one in a long line of innocent sufferers who are mocked, mistreated, and numbered with sinners. The words of his accusers only adding to his grief. People say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me, but they do. David is hurting. He's languishing, and the words of his foes are no small part of it. Boys and girls, remember the hurt that you can cause as as you point and laugh at the one who's hurting, at the one who's suffering. You're bringing them greater pain. And you're doing to them what Christ's mockers did to him as he hung on the cross. You're, you're doing to them what Job's friends did as he sat in the heap. You're causing them to grow weak because of their foes. And this is where David's at in this, this song of the sufferer's sorrow. And yet even as we read this, um, as, as sad as it is to read, there, there's also something uh, comforting and we too find ourselves discouraged. Remember Calvin uh, said that there is not an emotion of which any one of us can be conscious that is not here represented in this book as in a mirror. And He said that he found great comfort in reading the afflictions of David. Luther too said that the greatest thing in the Psalter is this earnest speaking amid the storm winds of every kind where you look into the hearts of saints as into death, yes, as into hell itself. This, he said, is the best thing of all. Many of the great saints who've gone before us have found great comfort in David's cries. Charles Spurgeon, speaking of an even darker psalm than this one, said, he who now feebly expounds these words knows within himself more than he would care or dare to tell of the abyss of inward anguish, he suffered depression. He suffered from gout, and yet it was the psalms that he turned to over four hundred times in his preaching ministry. He found great comfort in this language of sorrow. There's comfort in knowing other saints like David have been there, or saints like Luther or Calvin or Spurgeon. It it validates our anguish. It helps us to know that we're not alone. It gives us a companion in our suffering, as the psalms have been to many, giving us a friend to weep with, even giving us words to speak when we cannot find them. A psalm like this can be a great comfort. But it's also a great comfort because we don't only see in this psalm the sufferer's sorrow. We also see in verses 4 and 5 the sufferer's supplication, where he asks God to save him from death. Verse 4, where it says, turn, O Lord, deliver my life. That that word could be translated turn, or perhaps it could be translated return, as as if to say he he feels distant from God, as if God is is far from him. And so he wants him to to return or turn toward him. He, He feels forsaken. And so he says, Lord, deliver my life. The psalmist is apparently near the point of death. You see that in verse 5. And he says, in death there is no remembrance of you, so deliver my life. This deliverance that he asks for, he then gives two reasons why he's requesting it. One, because of what God has promised him. and The other, because of what will happen as a result of God saving him. So first in verse 4, he says, save me for the sake of, of your steadfast love. This again is is that word that comes up so often in the Psalms that that, uh, could be translated covenant faithfulness or or covenant love. He's appealing to the promises that God has made in in 2 Samuel 7 and in Psalm 2 saying, Lord, you have made promises to me as your king. Remember in, in Psalm 4, I am your covenant one. So please show me covenant love, covenant faithfulness. He's appealing to what God has said, and he's appealing to who God is. He is the God of the covenant who makes promises to his people and keeps them. In this case, he's promised that David's house and David's kingdom will last forever. And so David appeals to that and says, Lord, don't treat me like your enemy. Don't discipline me in your wrath or rebuke me in your anger. But, but Psalm 2, you said that's how you're supposed to treat your enemies. So he appeals to God's steadfast love and faithfulness to his promises. But he also appeals to the glory of God. Saying, save me and deliver me, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, the grave, who will give you Praise. You see what he's doing? He's saying, Lord, if I die, then there will be one less worshiper to bring you glory. And so he believes that it will be in the best interest of the glory of God to save him. Once again, his concern is not primarily his own well-being, but the glory of God. One pastor paraphrases this, Lord, what I want most in this situation is for you to bring yourself Glory. Uh, Yes, I want the pain to end, but uh, I, I feel pain. Please rescue me. I'm about to break. But save me ultimately so that I can tell others of your great power. But at the end of the day, this is about you. Whatever brings you praise will bring you pleasure. What brings you glory is for my good. That's a helpful perspective. Do you pray like that in the midst of your suffering that God would bring Himself glory? Is your life like David so wrapped up in that one chief end of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever that your instinct in the midst of suffering is to pray that God would help you not just for your sake but for His glory? That's ultimately what David desires. He recognizes. These, these foes who surround him may have reason to mock the Lord should the king die of sickness and so says, Lord, glorify yourself. Deliver me that I might go to your house and worship and these foes be ashamed. Which is what he turns to now in verses 8 to 10, what I've called the sufferer's Salvation. We've seen the sufferer's sorrow, we've seen the sufferer's supplication, and now uh, the sufferer's salvation, where God hears the sound of his weeping and accepts his prayer. Give me these last three verses. We've spoken often of this uh, sort of prophetic element in the psalms. You think of a psalm like Psalm 22 that we sang earlier, where, where throughout it, throughout the first uh, 21 or so verses, the king is speaking of his great suffering. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He speaks of his hands and feet being pierced, people surrounding him and mocking him. then all of a sudden at verse 22, there's, there's this turning point where the king speaks of God rescuing him and says, I will tell of your name in the midst of my brothers. Even though as he's writing Psalm 22, he is still speaking from the context of his suffering, he prophetically announces God's deliverance of him. So that even though it hasn't yet happened, he speaks of it as certain. You see something just like that in Psalm 6. Where David, by God's grace and by God's spirit, is able to look past his languishing to when he will be lifted up. He is able to to look past his vulnerable state to his victorious state, his vindication. Where, where like Job at the end of, of the book of Job. God hears his prayer, turns or returns to him, and vindicates him before his accusers who were shamed by God's answer. John Gay says, like Job's friends at present, people are shaming the psalmist who is shaking in dismay, deeply troubled, but that will be reversed as they see that they were in the wrong. Their apparent honor will be turned to dishonor. The Job connection, I think, goes even further when we think about how David is God's righteous servant in the context of this psalm, not suffering for sin, but being treated like one of God's enemies through no apparent fault of his own. And so he cries out to him like Job does throughout the book, Lord, turn to me in love as you once did. Hear my cries. Wipe away my tears. God's righteous servant suffers. suffers. He is mocked for it, as people assume he's under God's curse, but then God intervenes and shames his accuser. I made the point all throughout the book of Job that Job is a type of Christ, that in the pattern of glory, suffering, and then greater glory that we see in Job is a type of Christ. In Job, we we, we see this this messianic pattern, the same sort of pattern that that we see in Joseph, and that same pattern is emerging again in David. In fact, Luke chapter 24 says that the Psalms are given to us to show us this pattern of the Messiah's suffering and then glory. And so as we see in Psalm 6, the king's undeserved suffering, where he appears to be treated um, not as God's covenant one, but as his enemy... That's because in David is a picture of what will happen to the Christ to come. And even in his poetic depiction of his suffering and then prophetic announcement of deliverance, he is speaking beyond his own experience to that of his son, in whom every aspect of this psalm will be fulfilled, which is why in the New Testament Jesus quotes this psalm multiple times. In John chapter 12, shortly before his death, he applies the language of Psalm 6, 3 to himself and says, my soul is troubled. In Gethsemane, he does it again. Mark chapter 14, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. His tears in Hebrews 5, where it says, he offered up loud cries and tears to him who is able to save his soul from death, fulfill the cries of Psalm 6 the moaning that made his throat weary, the tears that drenched the ground beneath him as he took upon himself the wrath and judgment that is due God's enemies. Now for David, it merely felt like he was. But the way that that he prophetically depicts this suffering with the language of Psalm 2 for how God treats his enemies is intended by the Spirit to point to the one who takes upon himself the punishment due God's enemies, who weeps over those who have rejected him and whose vindication in the end will bring about the shamed terror of those who hate him. Do you see the shadow of Christ in Psalm 6? Do you, you hear the echo of Psalm 6 in the cries of Gethsemane? Do you see how David's inner torment throughout this psalm points to Christ's inner torment? It was one pastor said, did not go through life like a Buddhist statue with a, a peaceful, distant half smile, unmoved and untouched by the world, but was fully human. It endured the hellish anguish and torment. Question and answer 44 in our catechism as he obeyed his father. That's what this psalm points to. It points to the inner sufferings of Jesus. And the New Testament's use of this psalm confirms it, which allows us to explore further the connections between David in Psalm 6 and Christ. Just as as David appeared to suffer under God's wrath, Christ really did. Just as David humbly accepted God's discipline, so did Christ. Just as David did so with tears and loud anguish, so did Christ. Just as David went down near the grave in verses 4 and 5, Christ actually went into the grave. Just as David prayed earnestly to be delivered from it, so did Christ. Both were, were reckoned by God's enemies as being under a curse. Both were heard by God when they prayed, delivered from death, and triumphed over their enemies praising God at the end for their salvation and bringing comfort to the faithful and discomfort to God's enemies. Who were then troubled or terrified the same way that God's servant had been. You see that in verse 10. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. That's the same word from earlier in the psalm and from Psalm 2 for how now the ones who mocked him and said he was under a curse will be terrified by God's wrath. You see all all of the parallels between David in Psalm 6 and Christ in the Gospels. But you see also how Christ is so much greater than David. For, For even though David did not sin to bring this about, he was a sinner. Christ, however, was the sinless one who suffered God's wrath for sin to remove its condemnation from those who trust him. David only poetically went down to the grave or or near the grave. Jesus was buried in it. He descended into Hades. David was delivered from a premature death but eventually went on to die a normal death in old age. Christ rose from the dead and lives forever. He is the ultimate king to whom God's promise to David points and in whom God's promise to David is fulfilled. Even that glory of David at the end of the psalm. In fact, Jesus quotes verse 8 in Matthew chapter 7, the final judgment where he will say to those who were enemies of the king and enemies of the kingdom, incidentally in Matthew 7, even enemies of the kingdom who belonged to the visible church, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And so Christ, by his use of it, implies that verse 8 is a prophetic prefiguration of his exalted status as a resurrected king who will come to judge the living and the dead. And so verse 8 and, and verse 10, um, Derek Kidner says, are not merely a hard-pressed sufferer rounding on his enemies, but a sovereign asserting his power to purge his realm of evil as his kingly vow demands. Verse 8 and verse 10 are the king asserting his power as king to purge his kingdom and banish the wicked. God has heard his prayer. He has saved him from death. He's raised him from death. And now he comes again to judge the living and the dead. Speak comfort to all who belong to him, but judgment to those who hate his name and hate his kingdom, whom he will terrify. That's one of the, the questions that the psalm confronts us with is, which one are you? Like Christ says in Matthew chapter 12, whoever is not with me is against me. There's only two groups of, of people in the world, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Those who love Christ and long for his coming or those who are indifferent toward him or hate him. Verse 8 and verse 10 are a call to flee from that second group to the first who love the king. To repent of your sins, that evil that verse 8 speaks of, to believe that Christ suffered the wrath of God for it, was raised up in power and will turn back and put to shame all his enemies but make his people to share in his glory. That's the hope of Psalm 6. That as we are united to the king, God will hear our prayers too and raise us from death. Which is incidentally why in the history of the church, uh, this psalm is often used in connection with, with death and, and funerals. Because as one writer said, few psalms are more reassuring to the dying and those the dead leave behind than this. Which shows us Christ's victory over the grave, which if you are united to him, you share him. So that even if God does not save you from death, he saves you through it. It leads to resurrection. Christ rose from the dead and lives forever. This is the story that the church gives to the sick and the dying. Until his return, we all must die. But this psalm assures us that the God of life and not death will get the last word. It comforts us as it shows us the humanity of Christ and how our suffering Savior is not unacquainted with our grief but can sympathize with us in our suffering. It comforts us as it points us to life beyond death and victory over the grave. And it comforts us by giving us words to speak even as we approach that grave. As we share in the sufferings of Christ in this veil of tears. Carl Truman says not just of this psalm but of the psalms in general. They provide us with language that allows us to praise the God of resurrection while lamenting the suffering and agony that is our lot in a world alienated from its creator. And thereby sharpen our longing for the only answer to the, the one great challenge we all must face. Only those who accept they're going to die can begin to look with any hope to the resurrection. And this psalm helps us to do that. It, it incorporates death into the story of Christian worship. Again, That's why the superscription tells us to use this psalm in public worship because many today still find themselves languishing, their soul troubled. They know the the tears of verse 6. They feel the supposed wrath of verse 1. They know the long nights of verses 6 and 7 and and approach the grave of verse 5. And so need a word to pray and to sing to God in the midst of it. So he gives us this psalm. Which not only gives voice to our weeping, but points us to Christ, who in his suffering identified fully with this anguish of soul, and therefore our comfort as Christians lies not merely in David's example, but in Christ's victory. And so this psalm ultimately calls us to lift our gaze beyond this life, to lift our gaze beyond the grave, to the one who overcame it, who suffered in your place, it is coming again. Be assured that God will hear your cries in Christ. He will hear the sound of your weeping and accept your prayer, not for your sake, but for Christ's. Let's go to him now in prayer, the one who fulfills this psalm. Our Father in heaven, we come to you through Christ. Thankful for the loud cries and Tears of Jesus, which we see in this psalm, giving us a window into the emotional life of our Lord. Lord, in the Gospels we read so often of the narrative describing the events of Jesus' life, but in the psalms, which you tell us in your word are inspired by the Spirit of Christ, we see this little little window into the, the emotional life of our Lord who was acquainted with grief who was treated as your enemy so that we could be treated as your friends, who drenched his couch with weeping that our tears might be wiped away, who went to the grave that we might be lifted from it. We pray that every one of us would flee to him for refuge, fearing that judgment of verse 8 but entering into that life and victory of verse 9. We pray, Father, that you would comfort those who are near death, those who are ill, those who are languishing, that you would comfort them with the promise of the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting through Christ our Lord.